0: Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 through 12. Seeing the crowds, Jesus went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account, rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Y'all can have a seat. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you for these words that you preached, that you preached in a very real time to very real people, but words that are so deep and true and challenging that they speak to us even more than 2,000 years later in a very different culture, in a very different time, in a very different place. And Lord, we know too that Through your Holy Spirit, you're speaking to us, and you're teaching us, and challenging us, and comforting us. And so that's what we desire. We desire, and we welcome, and we invite you, Holy Spirit, to be with us during this time, to challenge us, to change us, to convict us, to comfort us, so that we may leave here as changed people, more conformed into the image of Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen. So we've been looking uh, for the past uh, two weeks on the Beatitudes. We're, we're in a 10-week series called The Path of Jesus, looking at this, this famous sermon, these famous sayings, these famous blessings, these famous announcements that Jesus gave. And what we're seeing is that these announcements are deeper and more challenging and more upside down than you may have realized. Like it's not the wealthy or the elite who have a place of honor, but Jesus says it's the poor, the poor in spirit, who inherit and who receive the kingdom of heaven. And it's not the comfortable or those who have it all together who are comforted, but Jesus says that it's, it's the mourners, it's the sad, it's, to use the word Robin used last week, it's the whiners who receive comfort. It's not kind of the natural way that we look at things or we understand the world or we go about life. It's an upside-down way of life in Jesus' kingdom that he's ushering in on planet Earth. And so we'll see this morning, again, that it's an upside-down, deep, challenging announcement that Jesus has to give. Now, this announcement, um, I think even more than the others... It's, it's hard to see upon first glance all that's going on here, and that's because you have to realize something very important. Jesus is, is a very real person, and he's actually, he's actually preaching this sermon, and there's actually people there listening to him, people who have a context and a story and a way that they understand and see and interact with the world. And the way that they interact with the world and the story that they've lived and their way of life is, is very different than ours as 21st century America's Americans in, in Memphis, Tennessee. And so, especially this week, it takes, it takes some digging and some hard work uh, to mine and to get to the riches that are underneath what Jesus is saying. But, but once we do, you're going to see that it's, it's really rich and really powerful Um, And I think it's really fun to do this, too. Maybe you disagree. Hopefully not, because we're going to go for it. Um, So this saying of Jesus, this announcement, this blessing, there are two parts of it. Blessed are the meek. And then part number two, for they shall inherit the earth. We're going to look at those two parts this morning, and we're going to actually do it backwards. So the first thing we're going to look at is, for they shall inherit the earth. What in the world does that mean? And then secondly, blessed are the meek. Who are the ones that this good news is for? So first, for they shall inherit the earth. What does this mean? Land, um, this word earth could also be translated land, for they shall inherit the land. Some of your Bible translations may use that word. Both are fine. Land for us in 2017 in Memphis, Tennessee. It's sort of a big deal, but it's, it's not that big of a deal, right? Um, it's more of a big deal today if you live in rural America, especially if you're a farmer. But if you live in a city, um, like, it's not, it's not a huge deal. It's kind of just a place where you, like, have a home and your family and all those sorts of things. Here's a story to illustrate. So I grew up in small-town Mississippi. My grandfather owns a lot of land, and uh, he raises cattle. He's a farmer uh, down in Mississippi. And so, six or so years ago, my wife and I, we bought a lot in the Binghamton neighborhood here in Memphis, uh, where we would, we, we would build our house. I think there's a picture they'll show you all. It looks way different now. There's a house on it, and that's where we live. It's a home. And um, so, I was down visiting my family in Mississippi, and here's a conversation I had with my grandfather, Papaw. Does anybody else have a Papaw? Anybody else? Some other folks from Mississippi. That's good. Uh. Having a conversation with Papaw, and here's what he says. He says, Drew, except he says it in a real country accent. He says, Drew, I heard, I heard you bought some land up in Memphis. I was like, Well, we did buy a lot that's 60 feet wide and 100 feet deep. So I guess we did buy some land. And then he asked me, He said, Well, congratulations. How many acres did you buy? And I'm like, Oh, um, like there's just a disconnect happening here. I actually did the math, and uh, it's acres. So I was able to tell him that later, and he thought I was crazy. Like, that's not enough land to raise cattle on. Come on. Um. So land for us, unless you're a cattle farmer in Mississippi or crops or something like that, it's not a huge deal. But for these first century people, especially Hebrew people, who were listening to Jesus preach, land was a really, really significant thing. Let me, let me show you that. And it's not just for first century people, though that's true, for first century people and you know, different civilizations, land was really important, and civilizations would conquer other civilizations to like, inherit and take over the land, but especially, especially for the Jewish people that Jesus is preaching to. It's mostly Jewish people gathered here. Jesus. Matthew is writing this gospel, this story of Jesus to mostly Jewish people. And land to them is a very, very big deal. It's deeply rooted in their story. Let me show you. Their story begins, and our story begins with land. Do you remember the story? God creates the world. God creates the heavens and earth. And God actually creates and plants a garden. And he creates people, and he puts them in that garden, the Garden of Eden. So the story begins with this idea of land. And land is a beautiful, harmonious place where people live and where people enjoy flourishing good relationship with one another, with God, and with even the land itself. Like they had to take care of the land. That was a mandate to cultivate the land, but it was, it was a joy for them to do that. There was this concept, this Hebrew concept of shalom, which means a lot more than than the idea of peace. It means flourishing, like where everything is working together, where there's this sort of harmonious relationship, and everything just kind of kinda works and works right. So the story begins with with land, but y'all know the story. Part of living in the land was living underneath the rule and authority and reign of God as God's people. And the first humans, like all of us in this room, sometimes didn't like that, and they rebelled against God's rule and reign, and so they lost the land. They were kicked out of the garden, and they became a nomadic, wandering people. But then… In Genesis chapter 12, something very important happens, and an important character comes on the scene named Abraham. Or at this point in the story, his name is Abram. Abram is a pagan man, and God reaches out to him, and God initiates relationship, and God calls him. And what he says to Abram is is very important. Let me read it for you from Genesis chapter 12, verse 1. God says to Abram, go from your country your people, and your father's household. Go, go from everything that you know in life. Leave all of that and go to the land, the land, the land that I will show you. And then God promises Abram that your offspring will become a mighty nation, and they'll fill and they'll enjoy the land. And this concept of Eden will grow, like God's people enjoying an actual physical place, the land. And then throughout the rest of the book of Genesis, the family of Abram or Abraham grows and grows and generations pass. They're still a nomadic people and they kind of wander around the ancient Near East. They like wander into the land and then around it and then back out of it. And then finally, because of a famine, they find themselves in the nation of Egypt And that's where the book of Genesis ends and the book of Exodus begins. This growing people, growing into a mighty nation, not just a family anymore, but a a big people group in the land of Egypt. Pharaoh becomes afraid of them, like what if these people rise up and take over um, and conquer us? So Pharaoh um, issues oppressive bondage and these people become an oppressed slave people in the land of Egypt. The rest of the story of Exodus is a miraculous deliverance story of God redeeming and rescuing his people from the land of Egypt. And then the rest of the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, will tell the story of God's people, God leading his people back to the land. The Torah ends with Deuteronomy with Moses reminding God's people of the law, of the covenant that he had made with them. God reached out and initiated a relationship with us. Let me remind you of all that that entails. Look, the land is here. We're going to go and we're going to enjoy it. And then the Torah ends, and the first book after that is a book called Joshua, when God's people in the Old Testament finally enter into the land. They finally have a place. It's a beautiful thing. I think the climax of that story is a man named Solomon who has a temple built where God dwells. God has a permanent place with his people in this land. And Solomon is singing this sort of hymn praising God, and it's this kind of climactic moment in the history of the Jewish people, the nation of Israel. They have a place, they have a place where they can belong. They have a land, they have a home. God is true to his promises. So you see how for these people, land was a really big deal. But here's the question, like why in the world does this matter for us? In 2017 in Memphis, with my 0.17 acre piece of land in Binghampton, why does this matter? The first two Beatitudes we look at, looked at are really compelling. Like the second half of each of those Beatitudes is so compelling. Like, blessed are the poor in spirit, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. Amen. I want that. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Amen. I want some comfort in my life. And then blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the land. I don't, I don't know about like That, to me, seems, upon first glance, a little less compelling. But here's the idea, that land is so much more, it's so much more than simply a place where you can build a house and have a family. Land for the people Jesus was speaking to, was preaching to, is this idea of a place where you can experience peace and shalom and flourishing and goodness and abundance and stability and rest from your enemies, physical rest, but also deep soul rest as you enjoy life as it was meant to be. Perhaps a better way to say it is the idea of land is this this concept of home. And the idea of home is much more than like a place where I go to at the end of my workday and exist, right? I'm, I'm not talking about that. And I know that For some of you, the idea of home, there's lots of um, difficult memories associated with that, but think about like the home in its purest sense, like a place of shalom, a place where you can be you, fully you, and fully loved, where you can rest, where you can have deep soul rest. I remember a moment a couple years ago when this concept of home, like in a moment kind of like settled in and gripped my heart. Um, so one thing that's true about me is that I care a lot um, about what people think about me. I am, by the book, definition of a people pleaser. Can you all relate? You're not going to raise your hand because that would be embarrassing. That's, you you got to keep everybody, like you got you to portray this, this image of yourself, right? And you're not going to raise your hand in church. Um, I'm a people pleaser, and if you are like me, then you know that that can be a really tiring way to live, right? That can be really exhausting. Like, to always have to put, like, the polished version of you forward, to always have to think about what others are thinking about you at that moment, like, that's really exhausting. But I remember a couple years ago, I was um, was walking in Overton Park, and I was really feeling exhausted from wrestling with that. I remember thinking, in a few hours, I'm going to go to my house, and there's going to be a little baby boy there who's going to run and give me a hug, and most of the time, it's a place where I can be like fully known and fully loved, a place where I can like rest, a place where I can be me, a place where there's stability and joy and peace, and this, this concept of home in that moment was was deeply meaningful and encouraging to me. So that's what Jesus is is getting at. And that's like land, they shall inherit the earth. It's this idea of, of home, something that every human like deep down within themselves longs for. But the rest of the story of the Hebrew people is, is a very sad and tumultuous story. It's a story of a struggling people, a wayward people, because just like in the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve had to live under and surrender to the rule and reign of God, as God's people, Israel, lived in the land, they too had to live under and surrender to the rule and reign of God. But if you know the story, it's a story of them constantly turning and going the other way, eventually completely forgetting about God, and then somehow remembering Him, finding an old book reading it and weeping, and there's national repentance, turning back to God, and then turning away from God, and then turning back to God, and back and forth, and back and forth. It's a wayward people, a struggling people. Y'all can probably relate to them, right? Your story is, is very much like their story. And eventually, more powerful nations surrounding them come in and conquer the land and take them into exile. It happened with the Assyrians. It happened later in the southern kingdom with the Babylonians, And so the Jewish people, the Hebrew people, knew this reality of exile. Like we know what home is deep within ourselves. We know what it's like to have a a place to belong, a place where there's stability and shalom. We know what that's like, and we deeply long for that. But here we are in exile in a foreign and harsh land under these oppressive leaders, how we long for our land, how we long for home. And you all can relate to that as well, I think, how we long for home, how we long for home. There's um, a writer that y'all are probably aware of named J.R.R. Tolkien. He wrote The Lord of the Rings Trilogy, and uh, here's a statement he wrote that's so powerful and so true. He wrote, we all long for Eden. We all long for Eden, and we are constantly glimpsing it. Our whole nature at its best and least corrupted, its gentlest and most human, is still soaked with the sense of exile. You, these Hebrew people, are soaked with the sense of exile. Even if you're not a father of Jesus, deep down within you, you have this longing for home. So, um, high school students, um, usually, not always, but sometimes like have something that they're into, right? Like you can think about, oh, so-and-so, he was really into sports, right? Like he was the star of the football team. So-and-so, she was really popular. He was a really good student. He was the um, overzealous dude in the marching band. So let me tell you what I was in high school. There's um, a few different things, but one of the things that I was that y'all may be really surprised to, to hear I looked for a picture, but I couldn't find. I couldn't find one that was um, not overly embarrassing. If y'all are friends with me on Facebook and you want to dig, you can go there. Um, But I was Drew, the guy who was really into punk rock music, (laughs) and the guy who played in like a um, a like punk rock emo band. It's true, Grenada, Mississippi, Uh, and so sometimes. Sometimes, I'll admit it, I still listen to and enjoy that sort of music. There's one other person in the room. And there's one, uh, there's one lyric that stood out to me by a band called Real Friends. I don't necessarily recommend them. Uh, here's what they said. Uh, and this is the sad, the sad reality, the sad reality for our world. They wrote in this sad song... <laughs> Will I ever know, will I ever know how it feels to be home again? I've been told that home is where the heart is. If that's the case, then I've never been home. This deep longing that we have for home. Home is where the heart is. Home is a place of shalom and peace and rest and stability and love and flourishing. If that's the case, then I've I've never been home. We're soaked, we're soaked with the sense of exile and this deep longing to be home. But Jesus comes on the scene and some of the exiles had been sent back to their land, but things, things were never quite the same. Like they were still waiting. They were still hoping. They were still longing. Many of them, like many of you, had grown very, disenchanted probably and cynical. We've been waiting for hundreds of years. They were waiting for a Messiah, for a king to come and bring all the things that God had promised them, like real peace in their land, real ownership once again. This isn't the Romans' land. This is our land. When's our king going to come? Waiting and waiting and waiting for a new King David, one who would usher in the rule and reign of God and who would rule on God's behalf, when is he going to come? And now Jesus comes on the scene. And do you see how when Jesus says this seemingly simple announcement or statement or beatitude or blessing, do you see just how like, deep and compelling and shocking now that it would have been to the original hearers? Jesus comes on the scene and he says, blessed are the meek for they shall inherit the earth. There's still hope for home. There's still hope for land. There's still hope for rest. There's still hope for deep soul rest, and it's the meek. It's the meek who are blessed and who enjoy it now and who will enjoy it for all of the future as well. So who are the meek? I can imagine uh, sort of a small group Bible study happening later on this week where a few people are sitting around with their Bibles open, coffee on the word sort of thing, and the question is asked, who do you think of when you think of the word meek? Like, who comes to mind when you hear the word meek or gentle or lowly? I don't know if this happened in the first century, but if it did, here's the scene I imagine in my head. All the disciples sitting around together after they heard this sermon from Jesus for a riveting sermon discussion on all the things that Jesus had said. They've got their coffee, they've got their desserts, and uh, Peter probably would have been leading the discussion, like stumbling his way through it. And uh, if Peter would have asked, Hey guys, blessed are the meek, who do you think of when you hear the word meek, when you hear the word gentle? Who comes to mind? all of the disciples, like, immediately would have thought of the exact same person. And they would have all said it in unison. Because the disciples were very familiar. It was written on their hearts, written in their heads, written on their hands. They were very familiar with their Bible, which is our Old Testament. And here's a verse that's in the Old Testament. It's really crazy. Um, Let me read it for you. It's from Numbers Numbers 12, verse 3. Now the man Moses... The man Moses was very meek, more than all people who were on the face of the earth. Moses, at the time that that was written, the meekest man alive. What a title. That's kind of crazy. Um, Congratulations, Moses, the meekest man alive. So Peter and John and Andrew and Matthew and all the disciples would have immediately thought of Moses. And I think... As Jesus says this, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Lots of the original hearers listening to Jesus speak this sermon would have would have also thought of Moses. So this week, as I've wrestled with this question, like meek, meek, what what does that mean? I've immersed myself in the story of Moses, in the man Moses, the meekest man on all the earth. And so I want to briefly share his story and share a couple of highlights that have stood out to me as I've I've immersed myself in his story this week. So Moses was born, we just talked about the the people of Israel, Abraham and his family, winding up in the land of Egypt, and they grew into a large nation, and Pharaoh was afraid of them. Moses was born during that time, and because the people were growing and the people were um, they were being fruitful and multiplying. Um, one thing that Pharaoh did is he issued an edict, and he said, "I want all Hebrew boys to be thrown into the Nile River. We're gonna we're gonna squash this thing out right now. We're gonna protect ourselves. All Hebrew boys be killed, thrown into the Nile River. If you know the story of Moses, or if you've recently rewatched because it's on Netflix, The Prince of Egypt, you'll remember. Uh, you'll remember that." Moses' mom uh, hid him away so that he could be saved, and then he was discovered by one of Pharaoh's daughters, and he was actually raised as one… as ethnically one of the slave people, he was raised in royalty in Pharaoh's court. And so he grew up to be the prince of Egypt, which is amazing because he was ethnically a member of this slave people, the Hebrew people, but Moses is the prince of Egypt. And then there's one defining moment in his life when he's probably a young man. you may remember the story. when Moses is wandering about and he sees an Egyptian taskmaster um, abusing a Hebrew person. The text says in Exodus chapter two, um, "One of Moses' own people, one of his brothers." And Moses is obviously like struck to the core and experiences anger and rage. And he actually responds by taking matters into his own hands and killing this Egyptian taskmaster. And then the text says, burying him in the sand. The next day, Moses sees a couple of his own people, a couple of Hebrew people who are are going at one another. And so Moses tries to intervene. And they respond by saying, are you going to kill us like you did the Egyptian? And so Moses is filled with fear, oh no word of what I've done has gotten out. What's Pharaoh going to do when he finds out? Pharaoh does find out. Pharaoh is filled with rage, so Moses flees and goes to the land of Midian, where he becomes a shepherd, from exalted prince to lowly shepherd. Then, as it happens, every now and then, Moses is wandering about, and he runs into a burning bush. You ever experienced that? Probably not. Um, there also aren't a lot of shepherds in the room, um, but Moses' the shepherd wandering about, tending to his sheep, encounters a burning bush where the presence of God has descended. And so God speaks to Moses, and God tells him, hey, I've heard the groaning of my people. And Moses, I've chosen you to go and set my people free. I'm going to deliver my people. I'm going to respond to them. I'm going to rescue them. I'm going to save them through you, Moses. Moses. Do y'all remember Moses' response? He's not super excited. Um, He's like, me? Me? uh, I don't know about that. And he asks a series of questions like, but if I go, who will I tell them has sent me? And so God introduces himself and gives him his personal name. And well, if I go, won't they think that I'm lying? Why would they ever believe me? I saw the Lord, Yahweh, in a burning bush, and he sent me to deliver you. It would maybe be a little hard, hard, to, hard to believe. Um, so God says, I'm going to do all these miraculous signs through you, like that staff that you have. You can throw it and turn it into a serpent, all these crazy things. I'm going to do it through you, Moses. You're my mediator, but it's me doing it through you. Moses says, but I'm not a very good speaker. I'm slow in speech. How am I supposed to like, give these speeches to a nation and stand up to Pharaoh? Like, I stumble over my words sometimes, and God's like, Moses... I'm going to speak through you. It's going to be me. Like, I'm working through you here. And then Moses finally gives up, and he's like, Lord, send someone else. And then it says that God's anger was kindled against Moses. God's very patient with Moses, but finally his anger is kindled. He's like, hey, hey, take Aaron. I'll provide someone. Y'all go do this thing. I'm going to work through you. And then God does. God delivers his people through Moses. Um, A miraculous scene of 10 plagues, the Passover, crossing the Red Sea. Moses and the people wander in the wilderness for 40 years. Moses gives the book of Deuteronomy to the people, the speech that he gives to them, and they're ready to enter the land. Two things that have stood out as I've immersed myself in the story of Moses this week. Um, The two defining scenes, I think, in Moses' life, in making him into someone who it could be said about, this is the meekest man who walks on the earth. The two defining moments that created that sort of man. First is a moment when Moses overreached and filled with rage says, I'm going to take matters into my own hands, and I'm going to do this thing, and I'm going to kill this Egyptian man. And then Moses flips all the way to the other side, and God's calling him, and God's wanting to work through him, and Moses is like filled with cowering fear and anxiety. He doesn't recognize like, man, God is giving me gifts and God wants to work through me. And then for the rest of Moses's life, Moses lives with this deep awareness. And if you had experienced the things that Moses had experienced, there's no way that you could not live with this deep awareness. Moses lived with this deep awareness of one, I am a man of God called by God, and God himself is working through me. And then two, Moses was deeply aware of God's transcendence and God's glory, God's might, God's power, God's majesty. And in response to that, Moses knew, like, I am a man called by God and sent out by God, but I am only a man. And I'm a limited male. And I'm frail. This is the key, I think. This is the key as I've immersed myself in Moses' story, this meek man. This is the key to meekness that I want you all to hear this morning. That meekness is about being truly human. Meekness is about being truly human. And what I mean by that is... To be truly human is to know that I am a person created by God, filled with the Spirit of God, endowed with gifts from the Spirit of God, and sent out with a purpose from God. But God is transcendent. God is other. God is majestic. God is glorious. God is all-powerful. And I'm also a limited man. I'm a frail person. I'm a needy person, and I need God, and I need other people, and the distinct gifts that God has given them. Meekness is about being human. The end of Moses' life is really fascinating because, listen to this, Jesus says, blessed are the meek, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the land. And Jesus is actually quoting here a psalm. Psalm 37 11, which basically says the same thing. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth, and they shall enjoy prosperity and peace there. So, this isn't an idea that's new with Jesus. This is an idea that was deeply ingrained in the Hebrew people, but listen to this. Moses was the meekest man of all, yet Deuteronomy 34 records the death of Moses. Moses, the meekest man of all, died without entering into and without inheriting the land. Are you, do you see why that's, that's a little bit mind-boggling? Like that's a, maybe it's just me. It's, it's like um, Moses' life is like a giant cliffhanger. Like that doesn't make any sense. What's going to happen next? If the meek inherit the earth, and here's the man Moses, who is the meekest man on all the earth, yet he dies before inheriting the land, what's going on there? Remember, Jesus is speaking to Jewish people. And remember, remember Matthew is writing this gospel account to primarily a Jewish audience, Matthew and Jesus are subtly, and at times not so subtly, over and over and over and over addressing this cliffhanger. And here's what they're telling us. Like the end of Moses' life left you like on the edge of your seat, wanting more. Like what's next? This doesn't make sense. What's going to happen? Jesus comes on the scene, and Jesus himself and Matthew are telling us over and over and over and over something very important. That Jesus, Jesus is the new Moses. Jesus is the true Moses. Jesus is the one to whom Moses pointed forward to. Let me explain this to you. Let me show, I have a, maybe a slide with a lot of words on it. Don't let it scare you. Let me just show you. This is, this is phenomenal. This is crazy. Um, and this is an aside. <laughs> um, but this, there are so many things for me that validate the, the weightiness and bigness and grandeur and divinity of God's word. And this is one of them. These are the sorts of things that you can't fabricate. Even if you and I got together and, like, we're working on this together, it'd be hard to fabricate, but over the course of hundreds and thousands of years, like, these are the sorts of things that you can't fabricate. Like, there has to be a divine storyteller like weaving this thread together. Check this out. Moses... Like I just said when I was sharing his story, he was hidden from Pharaoh when Pharaoh issued an edict for all baby boys to be thrown into the Nile. Jesus, if you remember the Christmas story, was hidden from Herod when Herod also similarly issued an edict that all baby boys under the age of two should be killed. Moses found rescue in in an Egyptian palace. Jesus and his family traveled in Matthew chapter 2 to find rescue in Egypt. Moses, in Exodus 19, went up on the mount, onto Mount Sinai, to receive from God the law and then to go back down and issue the law to God's people. Jesus, in Matthew chapter 5, what we're looking at for these uh, 10 weeks, went up on the mount and he actually spoke as God and gave people the law of God on a mount happenstance. Moses, throughout the Old Testament, is talked about as the mediator of the Old Covenant. God initiating a relationship with his people and then telling them, like, here are the terms of the relationship. Here's what this thing is going to look like. The Old Covenant, Moses is the mediator of the Old Covenant. And then Jesus, throughout the New Testament, is recognized as the mediator of the New Covenant, which we will actually say specific words around that in a few minutes when we say our communion liturgy together. Moses in the Exodus story is the deliverer of God's people. Jesus is the ultimate physical and spiritual, emotional deliverer of God's people. Moses' life is marked by meekness, and Jesus' life is marked by meekness. Let me read for you this verse In Matthew chapter 11, this is what Jesus says, a familiar phrase that he says. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Not just physical rest, deep soul rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle. The word gentle here is the same word in Greek as meek in Matthew chapter 5, verse 5, for I am gentle or meek and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, deep soul rest, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Jesus is the one, Jesus is the one who comes on the scene, who ushers in his kingdom And who invites us, who recognize what it means to be human, to inherit the land with him. We long for this place of home, deep in our bones. If home is where the heart is, then I've never been home. It's a sad cry of of our culture. And Jesus is saying, if you lay down your arms, if you recognize your neediness, if you come to me open-handed, you'll find home. You'll find deep rest, soul rest. You'll find shalom. The beautiful thing about these Beatitudes is there's a now component. You can experience that now, the deep things you long for in your heart. And there's also a not yet component. One day, like we looked at several weeks ago in the Apostles' Creed, God himself will wipe away the tears from our eyes. We will be home with Jesus, with our Lord. Here's how I want to close. Jesus here is essentially in this beatitude, he's quoting some verses from Psalm 37. And so what I want to do is I want you to bow your heads and I'm going to pray a section of Psalm 37 over you. And I challenge you later on to pick up Psalm 37 and meditate on this, because here we have a picture of what meekness and what resting in the Lord and His work on our behalf actually looks like. Not having to take matters into our own hands, but fully resting in and trusting in and beholding Him. Let me pray these words over you. Lord, it's my prayer for Christ City Church that we would trust in Yahweh and do good. That we would dwell in the land and that we would befriend faithfulness. That we would be a faithful people. That we would delight ourselves in you. And that as we do so, you would give us the desires of our heart that we would commit our way to you, that we would trust you, that you will act. We are your people. We're humans. That we would trust that you will bring forth your righteousness as the light and your justice as the noonday. Lord, would you help us to be still before you? We have restless, busy hearts. And would you still us just like Josh read in Psalm 23, would you lead us beside still waters? Would we wait patiently for you? Would we not fret over the one who prospers in his own way, the one who carries out evil devices? Would you keep us from rage and wrath? Would you keep us from anxiety for it leads only to evil? Would you remind us that the evildoers will be cut off, but those who wait for you, who wait patiently, will inherit the land. Let us know that in just a little while the wicked will be no more. Wickedness and evil will be vanquished and wiped away. But the meek, those who wait, those who are still, those who come to Jesus, the truly meek one, we shall inherit the land. Would you help us to delight ourselves in abundant peace? Shalom. Would we as Christ City Church know peace and shalom as meek, gentle, lowly people resting in our Savior, Jesus? Amen.